Pew Bible to Luke chapter 7. Uh, once again, my, my name is Davis Morgan. I haven't met many of you. It's my first time at First Presbyterian Church. And it's good to be able to fill in for Reverend Tim Horn. Um, I am the campus minister for Reformed University Fellowship up at Southern Miss in Hattiesburg. If you've never heard of RUF, Reformed University Fellowship, that's fine. We're the denominational campus ministry of the Presbyterian Church in America, of which First Church is a member. Uh, and RUF started in Hattiesburg, started in South Mississippi at Southern Miss in the 1970s and has since spread all over the United States and even around the world to uh, Manhattan and San Diego and even Hawaii uh, and even as far as Prague and Columbia. Um, and in God's kindness, that work was begun right here in this presbytery. So uh, it's, a, it's a privilege to be part of what God is doing uh, to the college, er, with the college students at Southern Miss, and it's a joy to be with you uh, and to, to share in that labor together. So since First Presbyterian is a member of Grace Presbytery, of which RUF is a ministry, in that sense, I am your minister to the campus at Southern Miss. So, um, And I, I, I want to read Luke chapter 7 with you, and I did not know when I chose this uh, that you have been going through a series in the Gospel of Luke, and I think maybe about eight weeks ago, probably listen to this very same passage, um, but I hope that you won't fail to be blessed by hearing it again. So let's, let's turn our hearts and our attention to Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. This is God's Word. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at, at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50 when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he answered, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, 
But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask God to teach us his word. Almighty God, we pray as we turn to your word uh, that you would, as you have promised, not let it return to you void. Uh, that you would accomplish the, pur- the purpose for which you send it. And so I pray for those of us hearing this word that our hearts would be softened to receive it as the word that is able to save us. Uh, for those who are afflicted, Lord, would you comfort us by this word. For those who are comfortable in our sin, would you afflict us by the Holy Spirit so that we would run to Christ? I pray it in his name. Amen. Uh, Well, if you had to pick a sermon, if you had to pick a passage to hear twice in one fall season, I think you couldn't do much better than this passage. Um, And maybe I'm biased because I'm the one who blundered into bringing that for you this morning. But I think it's a good passage to look at twice this fall because it really is, whether you've heard it before or if you've heard it a thousand times, it's a fairly easy story to understand. And it asks a fairly simple question of us, doesn't it? It simply leaves us, I think, with the one question, how much have you been forgiven? How much have you been forgiven? You see, Jesus interacts principally with two people in this story. First with the Pharisee, Simon. And second, with this unnamed sinful woman. And what he has to say to those two people is very different. On the one hand, with Simon, to to summarize Jesus' message, we might say that Jesus says to Simon, Simon... You must not be forgiven because you don't love me. And to the woman, he says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And so as we come to this passage, what Jesus may have to say to you or me by the power of the Holy Spirit may very well hinge on your response to that question. How much have you been forgiven? That's the question the, te- uh, the text puts to us this morning. And I want to examine this text simply under two headings. We'll simply look first at the Pharisee and second at the woman and ask, how much have you been forgiven? So let's, let's consider the Pharisee. Let's consider Simon first. And before we do, I think it's, it's helpful for us to point out, have you noticed that wherever you go in the gospel stories... Jesus is eating a meal with someone you don't like. Have you noticed that? Whether you are more of a conservative ilk, more of a sort of uh, proper and well-to-do ilk like Simon, you're going to see Jesus eating with sinners and tax collectors like this woman. But at the same time, if you are, to to use the right and left spectrum, if you are of a more liberal Mindset. If you are more uh, uh, tending to judge the, the rich and judge people who are sort of seen as the moral uh, upstanders, 
you're going to find Jesus eating steak and lobster in the homes of people like Simon. You see, Jesus, as he, as he builds his kingdom, is going after everybody. And he's going to be eating meals with everybody. And everybody is going to look at whoever it is you don't want at your party. And you're going to see King Jesus sharing a meal with that person. And for Simon, it's this woman. It's this sinful woman. And the story unfolds in in cringing, anxious, awkward tones, doesn't it? Now, when you look at this party that Jesus has been invited to, two things. First, it's very likely... Um, scholars and commentators agree, it's very likely that Simon has invited Jesus with very self-interested motives. He's invited Jesus to sort of get a look at him, to sort of figure out, oh, who is this new sort of famous uh, preacher who's going around that everyone's talking about? If he's the real deal, I want to be on the right side with him. But if not, I want to be the first to sort of brush him away and roll my eyes at him. In other words, John Calvin writes in his commentary, Simon has invited Jesus hoping that Jesus will do something that lets him simply write him off. That's the first thing you need to know. And the second is this, is that when we imagine this party, we would not be correct, I think, to imagine cheese and crackers. Um, This is probably not just a picnic. This is probably... A well-to-do feast with well-to-do people. This is probably something of an event, something of a big deal in Simon's house, and he's invited Jesus to this. And so social airs are on, prestige is on, and in the middle of this, uh, think Downton Abbey type party, here comes this woman into the party. Now, it was common in that world, if you were poor, uh, that one of the ways that you would sort of occupy your time is when the rich people would have a feast, you would just watch. Just hang out around the edges, around the fence, so to speak, and you would watch the feast. There's nothing else to do. But you would never go in. And this woman has gone into the feast. And she's standing behind Jesus' feet as he's, as he's reclining out from the table. She's standing behind him. And she begins to essentially, we might say, have a meltdown. And to pour out this expensive ointment on his feet. You imagine the room fills with the scent of this ointment. And, and her tears and her crying start to be the only sound people hear as people get quiet and, and turn their heads and notice this woman. And it's really awkward. You've got to put yourself in the shoes of someone, or in the sandals of someone, so to speak, at this party. This is awkward. Imagine you, you go to a party, you're not looking to have a, a Jesus gospel story encounter occur. You're just trying to go to the party. And this happens. I remember I was just a little kid when, when then-President George Bush Sr. Uh, got the flu on a diplomatic campaign. And, and got sick at a diplomatic banquet in Japan. This is more awkward than that. This is the most awkward thing you could expect. And everyone is watching Jesus, wondering, what is Jesus going to do? 
Is Jesus going to, we all expect, politely but firmly, like any other uh, well-to-do preacher, pat her on the head and send her away? Maybe scold her a little bit for the life she for the life she's living. Maybe preach at her a little bit. Maybe use her as a teaching example. But he just sits there. He just sits there, friends, and receives this worship. You've got to understand how awkward and how jarring this is. And everyone sees it. He just sits there and receives this woman, receives her worship. And for Simon, that's a no-no. And Simon is getting angry, and you see Simon grumbling to himself, don't you? If this man were a prophet, he would know better. Now, what's got Simon so upset? Well, it's because this woman is a lawbreaker. She's a great sinner. And Simon's a Pharisee. Now, who are the Pharisees? Well, you can ask uh, Tim when he gets back. But, but the long and short is this. The Pharisees are a first century Jewish group who put a massive amount of emphasis on the law of God. On its application in everyday living. And on the, the sort of oral law tradition that's been wrapped around the actual biblical law, what the Apostle Paul calls the traditions of the fathers. These are, these are people who love, or at least who claim to love God's law. But Jesus' criticism of them is that while claiming to love the law, they actually miss the law. That while claiming to love the law, they actually drag the law through the mud in Matthew 23, you can read almost an entire chapter, the seven woes that Jesus pronounces on the Pharisees for being hypocrites, for doing lip service to the law and actually having hearts full of sin. You can read as he says, Woe to you, Pharisees and scribes, you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside are full of death. Woe to you, Pharisees and scribes, you tithe dill and mint and cumin, but you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You see, Jesus' criticism of the Pharisees is not that they love the law, but that they've missed the law. And one of the ways they have missed it, the principal way they've missed it, is by trying to get it to do what it was not meant to do. You see, for the Pharisee, the law is not just the way to there is not just the way of life, it's the way to life. Keeping God's law, obedience to God's commandments, is not simply for the Pharisee the way that you behave as a believer. It's the way you're made acceptable to God. And the problem is that is not what the law was given to do. The law, we might say, is a thermometer, but not a thermostat. It can show you the condition of your heart. It can show you your sin, but it has no power to save apart from Christ. The law can show you God's glory, can show you your sin, can drive you to Christ, can even guide you as a faithful believer after you have gone to Christ. But apart from Christ, the law cannot save. And that's what the Pharisees have missed. And so Simon is sitting here putting his faith in the law. And what happens when you do that, what happens when you behave like this Pharisee, for one thing, 
you begin to get very insecure because all of your salvation stands on your performance. And one of the ways that will show up is pride. And you can see it in Simon and in other Pharisees that are depicted in the New Testament. Very self-satisfied. And also very bitter and resentful when people like this woman receive mercy. You see, if, if you have earned your salvation, if you have done it, then when people you see who you judge to not have lived up to your standard don't measure up, you have every right to pat yourself on the back and wag your finger at them. You have every right to be proud of yourself and disgusted by them. And so you have every right to grumble and be resentful and foam at the mouth when people like Jesus welcome them. And you'll see also Pharisees, when they meet Jesus, they're not that impressed. Do you notice Jesus' criticism of Simon? Simon, you, you think you're this holy person. You think you're so upstanding. You haven't even played a good host today. As he, you know, as, as he says in, in uh, verse 44 and following, you, you didn't even give me a water basin. You didn't wash my feet. You didn't give me a kiss. These are things that you simply would do when an honored guest came into your home. Simon, you have missed it. You see, that's the most ironic thing about the way the Pharisee relates to the law is when you are making the law your means to salvation you will almost always dilute the law. You will almost always lower God's standard so that you can think you've kept it. So you actually, while doing lip service to the law, don't let the law be the law. You see, it's only when you know that you're forgiven that you can let the law be the soul-crushing, soul-searching, exacting, precise thing that it is. It's only when you know that you're forgiven that you can listen to Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount, it's not enough for you to not murder your neighbor. You can't hate your neighbor. You can't let your neighbor go uncared for. It's not enough to keep the surface level verbal code of the law. Jesus presses the law into your heart in the Sermon on the Mount. You could see... The Apostle Paul in Romans eight struck or Romans seven, excuse me, struggling with the command not to covet, and that essentially sweeping his legs out from under him, and and him saying, I, "I'm a wretched man." You see, it's only when you know the forgiveness of God in Christ that you will let the law be the law. When I was in high school, I was in the marching band. Um, think whatever you want of that. Uh, but my, my high school band group, as I think almost all high school band groups do something like this, we had a, uh, a spring break trip to Disney World um, my junior year of high school. And that sounds exciting, uh, but the week leading up to that trip, I got sick. Now, when you're in high school, getting sick is not that bad, right? Because you... you stay home and watch TV and don't go to school and you'll get better in a couple of days and that's fine. But when you're going to miss a Disney trip, you're really inclined to want to get better faster. And so I remember in the days leading up to that trip, 
having the little thermostat in my hand and every 30 minutes, beep, 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 99.6. That's probably not good enough. Let's wait a few minutes. Beep, beep, beep. 99.5. Oh, we've got to get down there. Why? Because until that thermostat reads 98.6, you're not getting on the bus. Right? Until that thermostat says that you are clear, you are not getting on the bus because that standard is fixed and it does not move. It makes no allowances for your good intentions or you really wanting to go. And the law is like that. I don't know if he ever actually said this, but in the HBO series on the life of John Adams, President Adams said something like this, that facts are stubborn things. And what the Pharisee misses is that the law of God is a stubborn thing. To quote the Apostle James, you can keep the whole law, but if you miss one thing, you've broken all of it. And the only way you will let the law be the law is if you know the forgiveness of Jesus, which Simon does not know. And so for the question for you this morning may simply be this. Do you believe that God can forgive sins enough to let the law be the law? Do you believe that God can forgive sins enough to let the law be the law? Because one other thing I should have pointed out for this Pharisee, what you will begin to do when this Pharisee's heart is in you is you can see the sin of others like a microscope. You can see the, the sin of others in ultra-high definition. But you see your own sin vague and like you're having to hold the bunny ears just to get enough of a picture. Right? Do you believe in Jesus' forgiveness? enough to see your sin that clearly? Maybe here's a follow-up question. Do you believe God's forgiveness is rich enough to look at those people who you don't want to be invited to the party and to move toward them instead of away? That's the Pharisee. Let's talk secondly about the woman Let's talk about the woman. Jesus has spoken to Simon, has unfolded this parable. Um, and I should point out, the difference between 500 denarii and 50, you know, what scholars say that denarii and, and talents and all that, what they actually mean, it changes about every year what they say these values are. The point is that one's 500, the other's 50. So you could just say, you could say each one is $1,000, so $500,000, $50,000. It's a big difference, right? Um, the difference between Simon and the Pharisee is all about how much they perceive themselves to have been forgiven. You see, Simon doesn't really show much love to Jesus, does he? Simon's faith has not created any sort of love because he doesn't think he's been forgiven much. And the Pharisee is, or the woman is falling over herself to show love and deference to Jesus, to pour out 
everything at his feet. Because she knows she's a sinner. And a nasty sinner at that. Luke's term is a woman of the city. That most likely means prostitute. Or if not a prostitute, someone with a similar reputation to a prostitute. You see, this is a woman who knows her sin, knows that it's not acceptable, knows that even socially it's shameful. And so she is pouring out love at Jesus' feet because she sees his forgiveness as lavish. And that's why Jesus talks the way he does about her in verse 44. Do you see this woman? Simon, you haven't even been a good host, but she has poured out this ointment at my feet. She's wet my feet with her tears. She's wiped my feet with her hair. And it's as if Jesus points at this woman and says, Simon, she gets it. You don't get it, but she gets it. Her faith has saved her. Now this is important. Let's, let's break that down a little bit. What does Jesus mean that her faith has saved her? What does Jesus mean when he says, your faith has saved you, go in peace? Well, I think we, we, we can say this, that the reason her faith saved her was not her faith. The reason her faith was able to save her was not the strength, not the quality, not the intensity, not the power of her faith. It was the object of her faith. You understand, we don't want to come to this and say, well, we just need to have stronger faith like she has. No, the, the question here is not the strength of her faith as opposed to Simon's. The, the difference is the object. You see, Simon has put his faith in his obedience to the law. And it's created grumbling, resentful, insecure, unloving legalism. And Simon, we can surmise, is probably on a pendulum between self-congratulation and self-loathing, depending on how he's doing week to week. Because that's what the Pharisee lifestyle is. Whereas this woman, she has not put her faith in anything other than Jesus. You see, what makes her faith saving is not its quality, but the quality of its object. Because we all have faith. Right? We all have, whether you would say that you were a religious person or not, you have put faith in something. You have entrusted something to deliver you, to even get you through the day. You have fixed something as the thing, if you have it, you'll be okay. And if you don't have it, you can have everything else, but you won't be okay. Whatever that is, you have put your faith in that. The thing that you bank on. And that can be a million different things. It can be money. It can be power. It can be sex. It can be family. It can be work. It can be relationships. It can be children. It can be retirement. It can be health. Whatever it is, I want to commend to you this woman who has not put her faith in those places because she's realizing that they can't save. Now for this woman, don't miss this. Don't miss this, that she has this flask and she's pouring that out at Jesus' feet. We'll come back to that in a minute. Actually, let's talk about it now. Um, 
The reason her faith has saved her is not her faith. It's the object of her faith. It's Jesus. It's like those old ice boxes from before electric refrigerators where you would take a huge chunk of ice and you'd put it in this ice box, excuse me, you'd put it in this ice box and the, the big chunk of ice would cool everything in the refrigerator, right? You can put milk, you can put eggs, you can put bacon, everything else in the ice box in this chamber and the cool air flowing up from this big chunk of ice cools everything off. Stick with me. You see, the way that you pick up these big chunks of ice, you can't pick up a massive chunk. It's really hard to just pick it up. You have to use these big steel tongs, right? Again, bear with me. I'm going somewhere. What saves your food in those ice boxes is not those tongs. All the tongs do is take hold of the ice, Right, So the, the tongs hook into that block of ice. And by that, the ice goes into the machine. Everything's kept from spoiling. But if you just put those tongs in the ice box, everything's going to spoil. Right, You could have the strongest, best quality tongs, but if you just put those in the ice box, everything's going to rot. Look, what makes this woman's faith saving is not the, the tongs of her faith, so to speak. It's what they have taken hold of. Right? The power is not in our receiving faith. It's in what they receive. It's in the righteousness of Jesus. Right? Jesus' righteousness is what saves us. Our faith is simply the receiving that takes hold of them. Now, that righteousness, that, that mercy is beginning to change this woman. And two quick things I'll point out where we can see that this grace is changing this woman. The first is that the value of Jesus' forgiveness is beginning to be the most precious thing on earth to her. Now we'll talk about the alabaster flask of ointment. You see, um, this woman, as we've said, is most likely a prostitute. And this is a world before deodorant and soap and um, common hygiene. So can you imagine in that world, for a woman who earns her living the way she does, the power of having something that smells sweet? Right, it's influential already. It's very, it is most likely the most uh, valuable thing she owns. But then you think about it for her lifestyle. For the lifestyle of sin that she has led. This is key. You see, her faith has been up to this point in her beauty. Her faith is in her attractiveness. Her faith is in her ability to attract a man. And she's beginning to see that her beauty will never save her. And she's pouring it out at Jesus' feet. What could be for you this morning the valuable that King Jesus is drawing you to pour out at his feet? And then one other thing I'll point out is that the royal reception of King Jesus is beginning to become sufficient 
compensation for her to make up for the scorn of the world. Now remember, this is at a party where nobody wants her to be there. Nobody wants her there. They all know her reputation. They're all looking at her, wondering what she's doing there. They're all scowling at her. But from all Luke tells us, it doesn't seem that she cares. It doesn't seem that she's bothered at all by the scorn of this party and of people like Simon. Right? Don't, don't you kind of want that boldness? Even if you don't believe this this morning, don't you kind of wish that you had the confidence of this woman to stand in a party full of people who don't want you there and to simply worship at Jesus' feet in that place? I'm not a, uh, a very faithful follower of the NBA, but in 2013, when the Miami Heat had just won the NBA Finals, I think for the second time with LeBron James, a reporter came down to the court, stuck a microphone in LeBron James's face, and essentially said, look, LeBron, you're uh, number one basketball in the country probably, massive target on your back, heavily criticized on and off the court. Everyone is sort of gunning for you. Everyone has it in for you. How is it in high-pressure situations, how do you keep your cool? How do you deal with all the criticism that you receive? Uh, and LeBron James actually said some really thoughtful things, I think. Um, essentially, he said, it doesn't matter what anyone says about me because I'm not supposed to be here. He said, I'm just a poor kid from the inner city in Akron, Ohio. I'm not even supposed to be here, but I get to go into a locker room with a jersey with my name on it every night. I'm not supposed to be here. So it's okay. It doesn't matter what people say about me. Now look, don't hear what I'm not saying. I don't know anything about LeBron James's heart, but he has tapped into something of what this woman is experiencing. The, the joy of receiving mercy. I'm not even supposed to be here. I don't care what they have to say about me. I'm not even supposed to be here, but the king of the universe has spread a table for me in the midst of my enemies. The king of kings has anointed my head with oil in the valley of the shadow of death. They can't hurt me. That's okay. Let them laugh. Let them scorn. I'm not supposed to be here. Don't you want that boldness? I'll close with this um, from Brian Chappell's book, The Grip of Grace. Brian Chappell tells the story of Dr. Alexander White, a minister and pastor in the Free Church of Scotland, a scholar, uh, who wrote a story once of working late into the night with an older minister of the church, uh, working on various matters of church business, uh, minute, um, tiresome, tedious work, and then wrote that at the end of the night, the older minister seemed to not want to go home. And he chatted, and he just lolled through the conversation. It seemed that he wanted to say something but couldn't find the words. And then this old minister said to Dr. White, Now, sir, have you any word of comfort for an old sinner like me? And Dr. White saw that it actually was a real question. 
and that actually there was agony underneath that smile. And so he simply, not knowing what to do, he took the old man's hand and looked him in the eye and quoted the prophet Micah and said, He delights in showing mercy. And they didn't say much more. They parted for the night. And then the next day a letter came to Dr. White from the old minister. And it said, Dear friend, I will never doubt him again. Guilt had hold of me. I was near the gates of hell, but that word of God comforted me. I will never despair again. If the devil casts my sin in my teeth, I will say, yes, it is all true, and you cannot tell the half, but I have to deal with the one who delights in showing mercy. As we come to the table, that's the one we come to deal with, friends. Would you pray with me? King Jesus, uh, we, we pray now as those who have so much guilt on our shoulders, whether we have ever come to you or not, we pray that as we come to your table, we would come humbly and repentant. Uh, we pray that if we have never tasted your forgiveness, uh, that you would offer it to us, that you would give it to us this morning that you would give us faith to receive it. You would give us faith to take hold of your righteousness. Whether for the first or the thousandth time, Lord, would you draw us to yourself. We pray it in your name, Christ. Amen.